0: What I was thinking about last week uh, was that what I left out of the diagram was a sense of um, community and discernment of the Spirit. And so what you might see in this, uh, unfortunately, small diagram is how this RDC is how we learn to reason in community and discern the Spirit in community. And that's holding all these kind of things in tension. So uh, as we seek to understand the biblical plotline well, and how it relates to the great tradition and how it teaches us how to love God and neighbor and what this has to do with the clear and repeated teachings of Scripture. We don't do this as just me and my Bible uh, reasoning alone, although that plays a part in it, but it's me and my Bible plus other people in their Bible plus the witness of Christians uh, across time and culture and their Bibles um, as we seek to faithfully discern the Spirit. Because uh, there's a good chance, I'm sure if you've looked deep into your heart, you know that your heart isn't perfect, uh, and that your heart sometimes misleads you. And so to try to do all this alone uh, might set us up for some obscure um, or idiosyncratic um, ideas. So we bring these together uh, in a complex framework of, um, of seeking then uh, what comes to the front as central, which I think we see what's central is Trinity, uh, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, And particularly for Christians within that, you see I put the cross on there um, that represents incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And then from who God is and who Jesus reveals God to be and what he did among us, there are some necessary beliefs and practices that I think become clearer and clearer. There are some things that will seem debatable and there are some things that will seem more outside of the faith. Uh, And I'm not going to plot any of those today. Uh, because what we're doing in this class is trying to, to work kind of along this um, biblical plotline and the clear and repeated teachings of scripture. Um, because it takes some time to get a, a handle on this. Uh, too often I've entered into conversations uh, with people about some sort of um, hot button ethical issue and I can tell uh, that we are not working from the same framework. Uh, So they want to do the hot-button ethical issues uh, with a a game of proof texts. You know, bam, Romans this, and bam, you know, Genesis that. And so we're just kind of firing at each other. That's what they want to get into. And wouldn't you believe it, the people who uh, prioritize these proof texts uh, disagree with the people who prioritize these proof texts. And for some reason, they just can't seem to see eye to eye. It's because they're firing different proof texts at each other without having the larger framework. So part of what uh, we find to be vital is to think within this framework. How do those proof texts fit in the larger framework? How might they be brought into conversation with each other? And how then might that mm-hmm. teach us where things are central, what things are necessary, where we can agree to disagree, and where we can say, no, this is a line in the sand? Uh, but it takes a lot of, of humility <coughs> and, uh, and work, I think, to get there uh, well. Lauren, what would you add to it? Is there any point of
1: clarification on this? A quick one?
0: Or is this making sense? Yes. All right. Wow. Say that again? Is that a yes? I did it. I did it. All right. My work is done. Um, No, this is, I'm thrilled that this is making um, some sense here because, yeah, I think it it hurts to see the division in the church uh, that sometimes results from simple answers um, meeting up or not meeting up against simple answers from the other side or uh, simple answers that turn us so inward that we can't speak to the world around us um, or um, simple answers uh, that um, are so that make Christianity so narrow down uh, that it ceases to be a distinct and beautiful and compelling faith system uh, so alright um, well, it's going to be downhill from, from here then. So as we're thinking about the biblical plot line, so returning to that kind of top or whatever portion that is, uh, for today we're looking a little bit at uh, God's covenant uh, with his people, that we get the old covenant um, with um, with Moses and the Israelites, and um, getting into the kings a little bit. So today, and I think next Sunday, we will... We will finish with the Old Testament, Old Covenant. uh, And then we'll get into the New Covenant in a couple weeks. So, uh, God has uh, continued this movement. uh, If we're thinking about clear and repeated teachings or clear and repeated patterns, Uh, we see God with Abraham calling Abraham by his grace. Abraham doesn't earn it. It's not as though Abraham was such a moral exemplar uh, that he earned God's election and this great blessing. Uh, But whatever good Abraham might have done or might not have done, um, he doesn't earn in any way God saying, I choose you uh, to bless you and to bless the world. So you have God's initiating move of grace. God always initiates by grace. And as he calls Abraham by grace, um, he gives Abraham some framework for uh, how to follow him. It's, It's kind of early, it's a little vague, but he does say, walk before me and be blameless. So it is not walk before me and be blameless, and then you'll be the elect. But rather, God initiates by grace, and he has expectations for what it means to be chosen. Uh, So, God initiates by grace, Uh, there are expectations for what that means, and then a piece of that is that Abraham isn't just called um, to be blessed for his sake, but Abraham is called to be blessed so that he might bless the world. Through his descendants, people might be blessed. So it's not election for the sake of election, but it's Election for a purpose. Election to bless others. Uh, so, God's initiating grace. Expectations. Election to bless. So, fast forward a few hundred years, and we have the exodus, and we have a similar kind of pattern showing up. God rescues Israel uh, out of Egypt. Israel doesn't earn this. They don't deserve it. God will will get these passages like in Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you were the most righteous, because you were the biggest, the strongest, the whatever. God chooses them by grace. He delivers them, I should say. He delivers and rescues them by His grace. They don't earn it. It's God's initiating grace. Then you have the covenant that He makes with them. There's expectations of what it means to live as chosen people. Um, So you get something like the Torah there. But the point of them living as chosen people is not so they can simply turn inward and only be concerned about themselves, but they are to be a kingdom of priests uh, who are going to be assigned to the world Uh, that are ultimately, I think, intended to bless the nations. So, Abraham, chosen by grace, there are expectations laid upon him, and the vocation is to bless the world. Israel, they are delivered by grace, expectations placed upon them that will help them carry out their mission to bless the world. So, God's grace, we have uh, expectations and vocation. The church, the New Covenant, is a preview of, of how this pattern shows itself up, or shows, what does that even mean? Shows up. Um, again, God chooses us by grace. We don't earn salvation. It's not, I've done enough good works, and then God says, all right, you, get, um, you, know, you can have this access through Jesus. It's Jesus has accomplished what he's done. By, uh, is by grace you are saved through faith, uh, not by works so that no one should boast. So, God's initiating grace once again, but to be part of this new covenant, there are expectations of how we live faithfully. We are not in, uh, and then we just kind of sit back and wait till we go to heaven, but, but God calls us by His grace, He delivers and rescues us, and then we seek to live as faithful covenant people. The point, or a point of being faithful covenant people is not just so I can go to heaven when I die, but the point of being a faithful covenant people uh, is so that we might then turn and help spread that goodness uh, to the world. We are also, just as Israel was, we get this like in First Peter, called a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom of kind of uh, uptight holy people, but a kingdom of people <laughs> who have a mission to bless others. God initiates by grace. There's expectations of what it means to be in covenant with God. And there is vocation called to be a blessing. Uh, okay, I have three more minutes to, uh, to make um, uh, a little analogy here. With um, Let me say one more thing about the Old Covenant. Uh, you, you, if you've paid attention to some of those laws, some of them seem kind of barbaric or outdated, and we think, what do we do with those? Uh, so very quickly, I would suggest that, that Jesus teaches us that the Old Covenant was uh, good, but in some ways it was tentative. It was pointing to what was to come, So we might think of God meeting a people where they were. So you start here. He's calling them to here. And what we get then is a trajectory of where that might go. So in a highly patriarchal world uh, where slaves are devalued and women are devalued, what you get in something like the Torah is an advance. There are things where Uh, it is better treatment of women and better treatment of slaves because it was taking them from this point to a higher point. Now, (laughs) 2,000 years later, we look at those laws from up here, point Y, and we think, wow, what was wrong with the Torah where you got those laws about slaves and those Mm -hmm. views of women uh, because we're looking at it from this, uh, this further along the trajectory. But, so the Torah is tentative. Jesus says, God gave you, he's talking about divorce, God gave you, or Moses gave you that command because of your hardened hearts. Because of where you were, God adjusted and met you accordingly. But that's not how it was meant to be from the beginning. So you have this sense in which you're to follow the trajectory trajectory of where it's leading. So the Old Covenant has this tentative characteristic. Some of it is going to seem old and outdated and kind of uh, barbaric at times. Not because it's inherently bad, but because it's meeting the people where they are, calling them somewhere else. And so as Christians, we might also look at the trajectory of where it's headed. Um, it, I found that very helpful when I, deal, when I see some of the problematic stuff in, um, in the Old Covenant um, and then Kings I think, how about I pause there I might have to pick up on this next week uh, because I think it's important to hear some about tabernacle and temple uh, which is part of the Old Covenant as well God is calling a people who have a vocation he gives them a law that is dealing with the brokenness that came from sin through Adam There is social and physical and spiritual brokenness that sin brings into the world. And guess what? The Old Covenant deals with social brokenness, teaching people how to relate to one another, spiritual brokenness, teaching them how to relate to God, and even the physical brokenness, teaching them how to relate to creation and the land and animals. Uh, And so as we get to uh, thinking about how to relate to God uh, and covenant and election and all that stuff, it's worth thinking about tabernacle uh, and temple and what God was doing there and how it's preparing for what's to come
1: so I'm really glad Josh said just kind of offhandedly the quote about it's not just about going to heaven when we die because um, that works nicely with something a point that I wanted (coughs) to make Uh, early on in this class I read to you the scripture from Isaiah 66 where God says to his people heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool where is a house that you could build for me? And what he's saying to them is uh, something like, you can go ahead, if you you must, and insist upon building a temple, but remember that the whole (coughs) earth belongs to me. And when he calls it, when he says, it's my footstool, he's saying it is my resting place. So, um, Interestingly, you know, when we talk about heaven, we so often talk about heaven as this kind of destination after death, right? That it's this place that we're gonna go in the sweet by and by, uh, where all will be well. But we don't think about, I think when we, when we do that, we're not doing a good job being responsible to what uh, the Bible tells us about heaven. So interestingly, in the Greek and Hebrew, the word for heavens can mean something like the sky. But then they can move from that to something like heaven proper, which is God's dimension. Same with uh, the way they talk about, use the word earth. Earth can mean literally where we stand, the soil, or it can mean something like our dimension, (coughs) human dimension. So uh, when God says uh, heaven is my throne, earth is my resting place, what he's really saying is something like heaven and earth Uh, my realm and your realm go together. I want to rest in your realm. I want to be where you are. I want to dwell with you. Um, So this, I think, is a very important pattern. And this is something N.T. Wright brings out, if you're an N.T. Wright fan, is this notion we see time and again in the story of Judaism and Christianity that heaven and earth overlap. There's a way in which they overlap. So in a pantheistic model of divine human relations, heaven and earth are the same thing. Um, God's realm and our realm are one and the same. That's pantheism. In a deistic view, you have something like a radical separation of those two things. God made the world, but then removed totally from it, is inaccessible, has nothing to do with it. But in our story, uh, God comes to dwell with us. God wants to commune with us. God is still radically other. God is the one who sustains the whole creation and its existence and being. God's uh, dwelling is separate from ours in that sense, but God wants relationship with us. God wants heaven and earth to overlap. And the whole purpose, uh, the the election, we talked about election, is election as vocation. The vocation that humans are called into is to make sure that happens. And so what I wanna talk about is the notion of uh, temple and that I think we're helped to think about what was, what was so important about temple and the, the notion of temple and the consciousness of the Hebrew people. Um, what they're trying to create with the temple, what they're trying to partner with God in creating, is that original vocation that Adam and Eve were called to in Eden. So um, let's think about Eden as the original temple. Okay, so um, let's see. I'm going look at my notes here. I kind of got off track. Uh, Essentially, Eden is the place, the original place where heaven and earth overlap. It's the place where uh, Adam and Eve dwell with each other, with the animals, with God in peace and harmony. And they have a job to do. God tells them to expand, extend Eden, uh, subdue the chaos in the earth, kind of like literally geographically expand the geographical boundaries of the garden until Eden extends throughout and covers the whole earth. Heaven is to overlap with all of the earth, and we are to be the kind of priestly agents that see to that happening. So what we end up finding is, of course, that Adam and Eve uh, fail in this calling. They choose the path of folly, and they're cast out of the garden and cannot enjoy the overlapping of heaven and earth in the same way that they did before. So um, in some sense, we can say they failed at their priestly vocation. So now God has to pursue other ways of uh, making sure heaven and earth overlap. So he raises up these other Adam-like figures. So the Hebrews are always looking for a new Adam. That's always something they're, they're seeking. That's an important notion, the new Adam. Uh, but there's always, now there's some kind of new tweaks to the covenant with the new Adam because sin has entered the, the picture. Um, so the flood is one opportunity for starting over, for setting things right, But then we see Noah and his family fail at the task of being the new Adam, the new priest who fulfills the role of spreading heaven throughout the earth. After Noah and his family's disobedience, God starts over again and chooses Abraham and his descendants, Israel, to be the new Adam, to reestablish the Edenic temple. And as Josh talked about, as we talked about last week, the covenant is not a contract. It's God saying, I will be faithful to you. I will use your family to bless all families of the earth. And their election is simply a privilege, an opportunity to serve in this this way. They are to be the priestly people in the temple, which is the world, and to make sure that they call the creation to praise, that they mediate between God and creation. So Israel is to be the new Eden. And the Torah is all about the people living as the people of God. It's this answer to the cry for the Edenic life, a true relationship with God, a true relationship with one another. And uh, we see this even in the, the notion of the land, the promise of the land. In Genesis thirteen ten, Isaiah 51, 3, Joel 2, 3, the land of Israel is repeatedly called the Garden of Eden. It's interesting. Okay, so we can think of that partly because Israel is supposed to expand the limits of the temple and of their own land to the ends of the earth. If that's what Adam and Eve are supposed to do, that's what they're supposed to do. They are a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6. Um, so then we, have, we eventually come to the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that his royal house would continue forever in 2 Samuel 7. Um, this is another attempt at a new Adam but what do we know happens? David and his successors fail in this task. Uh, They're either weak or they're just rotten. Uh, Even Hezekiah and Josiah cannot prevent the final exile. But in the midst of all of this, Israel maintains this hope that one day there would be a new sort of king, a true king who would set everything right, Uh, In Psalm 72, it's the king who will judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. Ever since David, it is the king who is supposed to build or restore the temple as well. So the king's task is not only to establish justice, but also to establish this place where heaven and earth overlap and meet and then to expand that. Uh, The king, they expect, is going to be the last Adam, the one who will finally fulfill humanity's vocation, their commission. And from this temple, all peoples of the earth are to be blessed. Now, when we hear in Isaiah 66:1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, uh, God is reminding them of saying, what is this house you could build for me? That although uh, you may have this geographic temple on Mount Zion, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, Your localized temple is not the end, right? It's not going to last forever, Uh, but rather, like Eden, it is supposed to expand. It's not supposed to be the the final resting place. Uh, Israel's temple is a smaller model of something much bigger. That is God's desire for heaven to fill the earth, God's glory to fill the cosmos. But what we find is that Israel repeatedly falls away from that task. Um, they behave like the nations instead of acting like a place where the nations can come and see who God truly is. Um, one of the ways I think they end up living like the nations is by viewing their temple as a symbol of their restricted access to God rather than as an invitation for all. Right? So by becoming exclusionist in that sense, they become like everyone else, rather than seeing this as a vocation to serve all nations. Mm -hmm. So uh, we talked about the telos, that's this notion of the endpoint, that trajectory. I'm glad Josh brought that up. We see trajectories all throughout scripture. One of the main trajectories we see is God's desire for the world to be filled with the reality of Eden. A world where human relationships would flourish, where God and his people live in harmony, where the creation itself rejoices, because all is set right. So we see images of this in these uh, apocalyptic moments in the text. Ezekiel and Revelation depict this eschatological Mount Zion and its temple uh, with descriptions of Eden, but now Eden is the whole earth. The whole world has the conditions of Eden. So the promises inherent in Eden will be realized. God will see them to fruition. Um, and so we, we have that to look forward to. And so what we find is Christ himself is the one who accomplishes this as the new Adam. Christ is the messianic king who sets things right. And Christ is the temple. When Christ refers to himself as the cornerstone of the temple, right? Um, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. Uh, Christ is the temple uh, the, toward which we might think of all the earlier temples looking, uh, what they're anticipating is this reality. He is the def- definitive point of heaven and earth overlapping, literally, in a human person. So um, I think one thing we can, if we're thinking about this in terms of the diagram uh, that, that Josh drew, I think we could think of some what's necessary here kind of what flows from what is central I think we could say is in the central aspect of the the narrative of the covenant and what we find in scripture and the kind of the trajectories of the covenants themselves is that this movement towards the overlap of heaven and earth so heaven is to fill the earth this is God's desire that Not that God would impose himself upon us. God always invites our participation and wants it to be free. I think that's why God invites humans to partner with him in this expansion of Eden. Because it's supposed to be something that happens freely. That's the nature of love, right? So heaven is to fill the entire earth. And God will work creatively to see that come about. Um, So what we can deduce from that, what's necessary then to, to affirm, is one, you might say that creation as born out of love. And what I mean by that is uh, when we say our God created, God did not create out of necessity and God does not create out of some sort of, um, you know, and this gets into some of these older philosophies like Gnosticism, but this, this effort to distance what is divine from what is uh, not worthy of divine, okay, not worthy of being made divine or divinity. Um, So instead, we say creation is born out of love, that God loves what is uh, distinct from God's self and wants to be in communion with it. And then we also could say Israel's election, this is another kind of necessary belief, Israel's election and the temple is not about exclusion. So Israel's election and temple.
2: So talk about that in the concept that it's not necessarily racism, uh, but they'd be coming to an exclusionary view of themselves. Yeah. Uh, Josh Jacobs said something about that last week uh, when he was here to preach. uh,
0: so part of their they're called, in some ways they're set apart um, to be a holy people that calls people to them, and so there, there needs to be a distinction. They can't just absorb all the practices and the brokenness of the world around them. So there is a need to separate from certain brokenness, but the, that is not an end in it itself. But you, you seek to be holy and to represent God in order to invite people into that. Uh, so you invite people into a wholeness rather than just absorbing all the brokenness for the sake of unity. Instead, you become holy and you hope to draw people into oneness in that holy. So I, I think that's a... Is that a fair Lauren? Yeah, I
1: think that sounds...
0: So that's why you do hear exclusion in the Old Testament. But it's not the, the end goal <coughs> is to be exclusive, but it's a means to the end of uh, an in- inviting holiness.
1: Yeah, and showing others how to live mm-hmm. in such a way that is holy. Um, Yeah, so this is messy. and I know most of you probably can't even see what I wrote, but uh, so what I've said here is what's a necessary affirmation, creation is born out of love. Uh, But then we talked about the old earth versus young earth kind of debate, right? We see how that does go in this sort of, we can agree to disagree with fellow believers on that point. Um, As important as that discussion is, it isn't, necessary in terms of understanding God's will for our lives, right, in terms of living out God's will for our lives. Um, we can, it, it's an interesting discussion, it has bearing upon this in some respects, I think we could even say, but it's not, it is not at the crux of the matter. Same for, you know, when Israel's election and temple are not finally about excluding others, they're about including all, all persons in God's will for the world, then how this gets played out in the end times, because there's this language in Scripture that it's, it's not totally clear, like, is there going to be this new Jerusalem and new temple? Uh, this is something my students love asking me about. What is, like, how literal is Revelation, right? Um, and that's a, I mean, I've, I think that's a fascinating conversation. And again, can have bearing upon some of the necessary things when we think about how we're reading Scripture. But in the finally, in terms of living as... God's people in the world, that discussion is not nearly as important as this notion that uh, God's love is for all of us, is to include all of us. It's not about us having a privileged status in relation to others. Uh, Okay, so we have a few minutes for comments or questions. What else? Yeah.
0: It would make sense that it would do do us well to not think that we have reached the final trajectory that
2: people in time will look at us just as how we look at the Torah? Or we look at, like, like how, so with that, how do we approach change with humility?
1: I feel free to jump in, but. <laughs> um, well, I, I think there's a way in which I wouldn't want to say people will look at us precisely the way we look at Torah because um, we say that the trajectory of Torah was culminated or kind of came to its uh, definitive point in Christ, in the incarnation. So in that sense, there's something definitive that broke in. We say that that was the future breaking into the present, right? Um, so that is our final destiny in some sense. But what we don't know is we're in this kind of, we you know, what theologians say is we live in the now and the not yet. Uh, we live in this in-between kind of this the tension of but well, we know our destiny is resurrection, is to be all made in, remade in the likeness of Christ. But we really don't know exactly how that's playing out. We don't know exactly how God is setting all things under Christ's uh, feet right now. We don't know what kind of role we'll play in, as you know, time unfolds towards that end. <clears throat> so I think uh, we have to remain humble in terms of how is God using us? How much of this do we understand? Um, I think God uses the ambiguity to remind us that we have to remain humble. Is there more that you would add to that? Yeah, I think
0: whereas Torah was tentative, <coughs> Christ is not. So Christ is the fulfillment and the completion and the end point, as Lauren was saying. However, when you get into like Paul's letters, what you see sometimes is the way in which Paul is inviting a people uh, to to pursue Christ likeness and it all it their actual pursuing of Christ-likeness may seem like it's a step on the trajectory. So in the book of Philemon, Paul doesn't say, get rid of your slaves, but because of who Christ is, he will say things like, Onesimus is like your brother. So what that does is point towards this trajectory of, of um, to the end point, which is Christ, even though it's meeting the people where they were. So the church is is in process, but Christ is not in process. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. That's good.
0: I've got a couple of thoughts, but going back to your comment, Josh, about how Paul reigns slavery. Absolutely, yes. So if I can expand on that real quick. Central, who Christ is, what he's done in the cross, necessary to live in light of that. What's debatable? Uh, what you do with slaves and the first centuries following that. Uh, but what's outside of that is to treat them as though they are less human or to treat them as though they're not your brother. And that's going to lead to a change. Sorry. And another thought was I was putting together something Randall said a ago with what you were saying about. And in the end times. Uh, Randall said God can't exist this year. So in, in my in my framework, I'm <coughs> God was with us in the garden. We basically made it so that He couldn't exist with us, and went
2: to just dimensional times. phrase not crazy? I like you know, that language. But now in the end. Times,
0: Yeah, so God isn't fully absent, but he's not fully present, as though he once was.
2: And that's what we're looking forward to. One of the things that... This spurred the stop. It's easy to live and say, you know, the the central part. And the necessary is what keeps you attached to the church. But the debatable is where we live our lives. Mm -hmm. And it is debatable, and it, it has to be engaged and to change the subject just a little bit, you know, gay marriage was one thing, and that happened very quickly, but all of a sudden we have this whole issue of transgender and not even sure who I am. You can't quite disappear from that conversation because that's where you're interacting with people is, I mean, to me it's like, there's this cone inside of you and then there's the church but then there's the rest of the world and how you interact and that's the debatable and that's the part right where you're never sure if you're hitting it, if you're doing God's service or if you're really wrecking Christianity because these are new issues and new ways on how to reframe that and sometimes the answer is I just don't know because I didn't even see the train coming.
1: Yeah, I mean... I'm glad you raised that point because what it reminds us of is that um, we read scripture. We I think we have to remember that we have to read this text for formation, rather more than anything else. Information information matters. It supports formation, but um, we are called to be a certain sort of people. That's one thing we see time and again, right? That we are called to be a certain sort of people, the sort of people that work towards the conditions of life so that the creation can glorify god now what that means in every situation we can't really anticipate that's that's what i meant when i said we're not sure how we're living this out we're not sure exactly how god is using us we can get clues from scripture we can see how praise god that people discerned that slavery was not in keeping with god's will right uh, but then we wonder well what is our call then like for today what are we supposed to be doing that might be countercultural or you know And particularly with this issue, this is one that's not gonna go away, right? The church has to try to discern a a witness that is in keeping with the person of Christ. But we're in a time where that conversation is really difficult. One thing we know we have to do in the midst of the difficulties of that conversation is remain true to that formation that we have, the formation of being the sort of people who glorify God with the way we live, with each other, with the creation, and in light of this kind of always expanding mission of God in the world. So um, being willing to go back to this diagram, the way Josh has drawn it, that what I appreciate is this <coughs> reasoning and discernment in community. That's really hard for us. But we have to trust that the Spirit works through the community of faithful people and that we have the means to have this dialogue with each other, that we can look to all the resources that are beyond the church and within it, to have this dialogue with each other and look to how the Spirit forms us to, to devise answers in the situation that we're presented with.
0: Yeah, I think with the conversation you're speaking of, it's part of a larger kind of cultural shift to post-modernity uh, where everything, all truths, kind of become up for grabs. And I think what that is revealing is that many of us evangelicals, whatever you want to label us as, Many of us have not had a framework, and so this is hitting us, and it's revealing that we're living in that area, but apart from having been trained to think within a theological framework that can help us navigate it, so it's basically pointing out that uh, how unprepared we were. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we are living in that, but as a church, we should be training ourselves better to live within the center, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so why we. Say the Lord's Prayer. Why the early church was saying the Lord's <coughs> Prayer three times a day and why they would say uh, the Apostles' Creed throughout the day is to remind them to live there, to prepare them, then to engage the debatable. Um, because the culture shifts us to live wherever the culture is. Yeah. And, and uh, to seek to live opposite takes a lot of intentionality.
1: Um, so we're out of time, but this week as you pray the Lord's Prayer, I would encourage you to really rest in that statement may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven thank you